0: And now I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Sarah Varney. Sarah Varney covers health for KQED's statewide news programs, The California Report, and Health Dialogues. She has reported extensively on health policy, health disparities, public health, and environmental health. Ms. Varney also reports regularly for National Public Radio's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Sarah Varney.
1: Thank you. Good evening. Uh, I want to just thank you all for coming to what I know is going to be a very provocative discussion. And I'd like to start out by introducing our panel of distinguished guests. We have Greg Moon, he's director of clinical affairs at Proteus Biomedical in Redwood City, California. Dr. Moon has overseen the clinical development of the company's intelligent pharmaceutical system, which networks proven medicines with mobile phones to help people meet their health-related goals. He currently leads development of Proteus's first diabetes product, which we hope we'll talk about a little bit. I'll have to send, sign NDAs before we leave, <laughs> I suppose. And prior to joining Proteus, Dr. Moon practiced as an internal medicine clinician for several years. And Dr. Leslie Saxon is here with us. She's a professor of clinical medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. She specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of arrhythmias in patients with congestive heart failure. In 2010, Dr. Saxon formed the USC Center for Body Computing. The center aims to accelerate the successful development of ideas and innovative products in the wireless health space through cross-disciplinary work with various USC programs, industry leaders, and venture capitalists and she's the author of over 90 medical journal publications. Very productive person. (laughs) Michael Shapiro is here with us as well. He's the Dorothy W. Nelson Professor of Law at the University of Southern California, where he focuses on the intersection of bioethics and constitutional law. He's the editor of the law school text Bioethics and Law, Cases, Materials, and Problems, and several law journal articles, including The Identity of Identity, Moral and Legal Aspects of Technological Self-Transformation, and Does Technological Enhancement of Human Human Traits Threaten Human Equality and Democracy. So what we're talking about this evening can sound almost like a science fiction film. Implanted devices, digestible chips, wearable monitors that, in some cases, use cell phones to send data about our bodies to computer networks either across town or across the country or even across the world. And the idea is, as Dr. Saxon told me before we came on, is to really connect patients with their own information and connect the information to a patient's medical team. And the promise, of course, is, is to better manage our health. And much of this, I think, can seem like a future that is very far away. But I imagine many of us would be surprised that in some ways this future is already here. And I, I, earlier this afternoon, I was actually had the opportunity to go visit Dr. Saxon at the hospital at USC and had a chance to meet some of her patients who actually have these devices installed in them. So I wonder, Dr. Saxon, if you could just start out. And given that we oftentimes think of these things as, as uh, sometime coming down in, in the future, where the Jetsons are flying around in spaceships, but in fact it's here. So maybe describe for us what we saw this afternoon in the hospital and how you're using this wireless technology already.
2: Sure, so in that sense the Brave New World is upon us, at least in my area, which is implantable cardiac devices and wearable sensors. So we put in a very common device, and I brought some show and tell items, but this is um, an implantable defibrillator that treats um, life-threatening heart rhythms uh, as one of its basic functions, but it also can support slow heart rates It can also, through a series of wires that are attached to the heart, um, cause the heart to beat more efficiently. And it's used to treat a very common condition called congestive heart failure. That's um, the number one reason why Medicare patients are hospitalized and number one discharge diagnosis. Very expensive condition to treat. This single device can't do all those things. So it, it sort of takes care of some of the major threats to these patients' morbidities and sources of risk. It's wireless, this thing is an antenna so that for the last four years or so, and I've been implanting these things for 20 years, you can put this in a patient, and you can wirelessly take data from this device, and not just this device, but you can pony on other things. So a weight uh, scale and blood pressure cuff at home. And also you can query the patient as to how they're feeling at home. And all that data can be summarized daily or on demand if the patient has a need or a change in their way they feel. And then that can be remotely uh, accessed by the doctor any place, any time. So I can look at it in the clinic. Our staff can look at it. I can look at it at home on New Year's Eve, as I did last year, and triaged a problem that would have formerly taken me seven or eight hours and a lot of pain going back and forth and you know, a lot of anxiety for the patient. This was a young guy who had this in. Um, so I could triage you know, problems kind of immediately so that's what we're doing now.
1: And you were also showing us the, the, the data output. This is an example. And one of the patients we met of yours, somebody who lives an hour, hour and a half outside of Los Angeles. Right now, if without the wireless device, he has to come in to the clinic multiple times a month. And with this, you can basically read how he's doing while
2: he's sitting at his home in Antelope Valley. Absolutely, and integrate it into the rest of what I'm doing, the way we all multitask now and use our personal computer. You may look at a sports score, you may work, you may answer email, you may play with your kids, you know, look at homework or something. So the idea is that, that you can bring in this medical information into that, that flow. So while doctors get more information, they also get more autonomy. They can control the time a little bit. They can dispatch these tasks much more efficiently. Not only that, one of the big complaints about high-tech medicine and people that do what I do is, and I think this kind of really misconception in the country is that we need to dumb down medicine, take the technology out and avoid this brave new world. The truth is we need to connect everyone better. We need to take this technology and and connect it to the patient and the other doctors involved. So at the same time I'm looking at this data, I can send an email, a text to the primary care doctor in Antelope Valley and say, hey, this guy had an arrhythmia. I started this drug. I can send that same data to maybe his daughter in Vermont who's interested in that and create this team and this very democratic flow of information that hopefully you know, creates enhanced outcomes because everybody's in the know. It's a more enriched experience for the patient. The patient's actually engaged versus a more paternalistic, I call you, I tell you what to do. You know, you and I are partnering. I think you saw that today with our patients. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really trying to, I hate to say empower because it's nauseating, but you know, work with them in a a partnership to to advance things and understanding. So for me, technology is more like, you know, macaroni and cheese. It brings me closer to the patient. It's down home it's a more of an intimate kind of thing than okay i put your device and i'll see you every three months you know And we'll come
1: come back and explore a lot of the questions that you you brought up. I want to just go to Greg Moon now, because your company is particularly interested in heart failure. And just for those of us who are not doctors in the room, this is when the heart can't pump enough blood to the body's organs, essentially. And it impacts some 5 million Americans each year and about 30 million people worldwide. And it's obviously a big market. And if I were a smart business person, I would invest in this. Um, So first of all, describe for us some of the products that Proteus already has on the market when it comes to heart failure.
0: Sure. Uh, So we're interested not only in heart failure, but really solutions for uh, chronic disease in general. And particularly, just echoing some of the themes that that, uh, Leslie was bringing up, we're interested in feeding back information to patients so that they can more effectively self-manage. And then the second piece is, just as you were saying, uh, is uh, enabling information to get around to the right people at the right time so that you can deliver this kind of um, you know, team-based, patient-centered care that everybody's really striving to do. So it's, it's really enabling people to self-manage, coordination of care is what we're aiming for. So we, we do that by um, literally networking the daily pill uh, with your cell phone. Uh, and through that architecture, we're able to gather information about um, what medication's taken, when it's taken, what the dose is. Uh, we gather that uh, in the context of um, other physiologic and behavioral information. Um, so uh, things like activity, sleep, um, heart rate information. And then at the the, the the server level we can bring in additional streams of information. Things for say diabetes, uh, telemetric, glucometer data. So we bring all of this information together. Uh, and then feed it back to the, the patients themselves primarily. They get to decide who gets to see it. Is that just them? Is that a family member that's helping them take care of the, their, their particular condition? Um, we think in most cases it's gonna involve uh, you know, the physician and including um, uh, him or her in that loop and the, the whole care team.
1: So are these microchip-enabled drugs, that's what you're describing, are yeah. they actually out in the marketplace? They're being sold and no, used no. right now? No.
0: They're they're currently in development. We've uh, used them in I think uh six studies so far in different therapeutic areas, tuberculosis, hypertension, heart failure, uh mental health uh with schizophrenic and bipolar patients. Uh and we're just about to launch a, a series of studies in diabetes. Um so we're about we're about three years from the market.
1: And and what have you found so far in terms of how effective these drugs are in keeping patients uh you know on their prescribed drug regimen?
0: Sure, so uh, you, you may have heard sort of commonly banded about statistics of 50% of people don't take their medications effectively. There's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and what we do uh, is we provide the information back about somebody's medication taking behavior, wrap that up in some behavioral support tools so that it's engaging and it's impactful. Um, uh, we have not yet actually done a full outcome study to determine whether we can impact adherence with this. We have strong belief and hope of it. of course, we can. Um, but we've done a number of studies basically showing that the technology uh, works. We're able to move around the information and collect the information that, that, um, that we want to gather and that, that patients are really pretty excited about the new insights it gives them about how they're taking care of themselves.
1: And how do you ensure that people, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, people probably are not really ready to get blasted with a lot of extra data, since we're all sort of overloaded as it is. So how do you distill the data down, and -hmm. how do you make sure it gets to the right person?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that is really the primary design challenge, is nobody, including the patients, want to get overloaded with information. You just start to turn it off. I mean, the common example, if you're walking through an ICU ever, you hear all the alarms going off, and most of the time somebody's reaching over thoughtlessly and turning it off mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than actually looking at what what's uh, necessarily causing it. So that you, you don't want information overload because people just zone out. So um, we really focus up, upon delivering distilled, actionable information. Uh, and um, by allowing the patient to really decide who gets to see it and how much of it to see, that's another filtering step. So. The yeah, the idea really is is you know getting that kernel of information that's actionable to the right people so at the right time. So give us an
1: example of what that would be for a specific drug.
0: Uh, okay, so for example, um, if I'm wearing a, a physician hat right now, say say somebody were to be coming into my office and I'd notice that their blood sugars are completely out of control, and the typical conversation would would go. Um, uh, How's it going? Well, it's going okay. Are you taking your medicine? Sure, okay. Then then you're you're left with this black box of, is the problem because the medications are ineffective? Is it the wrong dose? Is it that um, people uh, are are just not taking it? You don't know. And the the typical knee-jerk reaction is, you want to do something, so you end up adjusting the meds. So imagine if you had, at the time of somebody arriving, a a summary of, uh, you know what the the, the medication taking behavior has been. Uh, instead, the conversation becomes, "Hey, it seems like you know a lot of these weeks you're missing some of your doses. You know, let's think of some strategies for how you might remember to take them more effectively, uh, and then you can actually decide to focus on the behavioral aspect of it rather than just." You know, prescribing yet another medication that m- may not be taken just like the original one was.
1: And, and Mike Shapiro, you're a bioethicist, and so you think a lot about these things, and I think it's, it seems like these kinds of reminders to either patients or physicians can seem almost benign, um, but they also, of course, raise a lot of questions about personal autonomy and privacy, especially for vulnerable populations, like the elderly, perhaps, um, or children. And I, I wonder, in your view, um, is there does there have to be a trade-off here? Can you have, monitor and surveillance, and maintain privacy and personal autonomy.
3: First, I prefer to be called a lawyer. I'm okay. a lawyer, and I'm here to make trouble. <laughs> That's what I do. <clears throat> yes, there have to be trade-offs. But before I even get to that, let me say this: all of these technologies, I think, are extremely promising. I mean, I don't take the view of William F. Buckley, who said that the fun- his function was to stand on top of history and say st- stand athwart history and say stop. I think it's Mostly fine. But you know, we do operate on Murphy's Law. Uh, You know, my view is people are no damn good. And (laughs) things are going to go wrong no matter what. Now, number one, when things are done with competent patients, with adequate information, what you are likely to expect, no guarantees, but you know, these are the probable benefits, the probable risks, there's nothing wrong with this. There's no invasion of autonomy or privacy when you do something with the patient's consent or permission. Um, you know, there are, some, there are some hospitals that send out bills that don't specify what they did for you. And if you ask, them, we can't tell you that, it's privacy. What do you mean it's privacy? It's my stuff, you know? So, you know, let's, let's get rid of that confusion there. Now, part of what has been raised uh, here has to do with issues of whether patients are behaving themselves properly. I mean, all of these are technologies about getting information about patients from patients to themselves and to others. And this is usually a benign process, but not always. The issue that was just raised here had to do with comply by everybody here. Uh, 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 Doctors Moon and Dr. Saxon, sorry, we only just met, <laughs> Saxon Saxon, and Ms. Varney, uh, is about compliance. If you had 100% patient compliance, something would be wrong, that would make no sense. Everybody reacts differently to different kinds of procedures and medications. If I take an antibiotic and I get doubled over in cramps, I'm gonna have to trade off whether or not I can work with cramps or with a sinus infection. And I don't care what the physician says, it's my preferences. I'm the one who has to do the work and I will stop taking it if I feel like it. In fact, I wouldn't even call it non-compliance. There's no trick, but the best thing to do to analyze these, these different kinds of issues is to separate cases. Different kinds of patients, different kinds of purposes. What could be the purposes of all of these? One, the worst case is the physician said, I'm not going to treat you unless you comply. Look, that's an abuse of the medical monopoly. I mean, it's annoying. Sometimes it's a waste of money, but that really is an inappropriate intrusion on the physician-patient relationship. But these, th- these devices are not mainly being used for purposes of coercing patients into doing what physicians want. They can be used first simply to monitor life signs for the patient's benefit. I mean, suppose you were simply monitoring someone to see if they were at risk, if we had some device that said, you know, in a few minutes or in an hour, you're gonna have a heart attack. With the patient's permission, that's fine. I mean, that's just monitoring. Communications devices for purposes of treatment. You know, many of you, maybe most of you have kids. did not you get tired of taking your kid to the ER, to the pediatrician, just to look at a rash? You can just hold the child up to the screen and say, look. And the physician go, no, that's just a virus. Or better bring the kid someplace because it's smallpox or something. No, that's not <laughs> to. Right. Um, you separate out all these purposes. Treatment, monitoring. Forty years ago, the schvitz twins of Harvard proposed monitoring and controlling the behavior of people released on parole and probation by putting electrodes in their heads and ankle bracelets, and if they left where they were supposed to be, you just zapped them and gave them a, <laughs> you know, a really serious pain or in their eyeball or something. These are multitudes of purposes. Some of them are simply unacceptable. Some of them, in some cases, and you start mapping this on to different kinds of patients, may be okay. For example, suppose you're trying to cure an addict. Well, they are in real trouble. Maybe in those cases, it's appropriate for the physician to say, you have to agree to be monitored, or I will not treat you, and you're going to wind up back in prison.
1: And it also seems, let me just stop you there for a moment, it also seems like, in Dr. Saxon, maybe you can speak to this, or, or even Greg, that and this is something you brought up, um, Mr. Shapiro, in the green room, which was that this could really be used in clinical trials to assure that, in fact, the people who are participating in the clinical trials are, in fact, doing what they have said that they were going to do. With. Is this something that you have, you've thought about for, for the work you're doing at Proteus?
0: Uh, it, it could fundamentally change how you're doing, designing, and interpreting your clinical trials and that you have information who's taken the medication who hasn't that therefore defines exposures. And then, based upon that, you can um, you know potentially even shorten or or shrink the size of studies to get the information you need to know whether a drug's actually working
1: and so in that case, it could be, and this was your point that in that case, as part of your participation in the trial could hinge on your Agreeing to be monitored and to making sure that this information could be shared. That's what I meant by
3: being very careful to separate out the particular cases, the kind of process, the kind of patient, and the purpose involved. If you're in a clinical trial, what is being sought is critically important information about efficacy and adverse effects. If you don't take what you're given, you know, you may not know whether it's the real thing or a placebo, if you don't take it, the data are distorted. The data about adverse effects and efficacy are disordered. and it makes perfectly good sense to say, look, if you don't agree to be monitored, you can't be in this clinical trial. We have no obligation to put any particular person in it. It's not like like, an ordinary treatment transaction. So that's that's a very good illustration. In the general case of noncompliance, you you can just multiply the examples across the board. Uh, Some people don't comply because they don't have the money. Their obligation is to be honest about it and not to say to the physician, yeah, I'm taking my medicine, so the physician won't yell at them. I mean, If they do that, it could be disastrous.
1: Because This afternoon when we were, I was over at USC, Dr. Saxon, you had two patients, one who had a wireless device, one who did not. Tell us, for the patient who has the wireless device, what kind of information would this current generation, or this current generation of, of medical technology, what are they actually seeing in their home? Are they actually seeing readouts? Are they, are they getting text
2: messages or emails? Are we there yet, or is that somewhere down the line? Well, my patients do get emails from us, but it's a, it's a one-way street in the sense that they can enter some limited information. They can initiate a transmission if they have a symptom. Many times, it's just a passive communication. That data goes on the internet, and only healthcare providers can look at it then we typically will initiate an electronic communication of the patient saying you know, an email or something saying everything's fine. But you're typing that out, that's not automatically generated by the wireless device? We're working on that, we're working on an application. We have one that does that, but that's not the universal standard right now. It's not to share the data from the, it seems intuitive that if the patient has the device in them that they have a right to that data, but we're not releasing that to patients yet. And why is that? I think there are a lot of there are a lot of concerns about it. Um, typically, the people who manufacture the devices, who do they think their customer is? They think their customer is either the hospital that's paying for the device, or insurer uh, who's paying the hospital, or um, they think it's the doctor who chooses their device over their competitor, and not the person who's, who has it in their body. But there's this, you know, in society now, I think this democratization of information, where you know my bank can't keep my financial information from me or my home value. I can access all that, right? You know, hourly if I want to. Um, so I think this is moving toward medicine where patients say, hey, I want this stuff. And, and guess what? Google's going to give it to me if you don't, because I'm going to create a personalized health record, or Microsoft, and you just have to hook into it. And I think as this happens, it's a very positive thing. Then people, they may not, we talked about this today, some, some people may not want to see all the information. They just may want a glowing heart that says your heart's okay. So what kinds of information could you imagine a person, one of your patients
1: having that would allow them to sort of self-adjust? You know, you were mentioning, you know, I
2: went out to Chinese food last night and I woke up this morning and I don't feel so great. Maybe I shouldn't eat Chinese food. Right, so much of this data is kind of actionable once you train the patient. So we constantly have patients, um, what we call, use flexible drug regimens. If this happens, take this, if this, that. But we use kind of crude measures. So whenever I talk about this technology, this current status of the art is pretty primitive. It's the same exam that they've been using for, you know, a few thousand years. Mm -hmm. Let's bring it up a notch and get some real data earlier that may uh, indicate disease worsening earlier, and then let the patient act on their own signal just as they would with a high blood sugar. So if you have a high heart, we have a new device we're putting in that measures heart pressure. Heart pressure goes up, the patient actually, you know, manages it, just like they would a high blood sugar. That's really powerful because that's the first thing that happens. Um, and we can prevent strokes I and mean, we can just do lots of things with this data monitoring more continuously. It's a more natural state, right? You don't just, you're not just what you are when you're in your doctor's office for that few harried moments.
1: So how do you, how do, how would I as a patient who I don't have a medical background, how would I know whether or not a 77
2: heart rate is a good thing or a bad thing, or if it goes up to 100, is that too high or too... It's amazing how quickly people learn themselves mm-hmm. and learn the data, because they're... Okay, first of all, they have a dog in the fight, right? They learn it much quicker than you do. Then they inform you, and you end up iterating this pretty complicated, more sophisticated relationship. My relationship with my wired patients, where we're constantly talking about the data, is a much richer experience than with people we're going by kind of the stuff I've I've done for years. That's why I'm so motivated by it. That's why I'm so evangelical about it. I think this issue of... Compliance and you know, Big Brother is a fascinating one. There, there, there's a potential though to really do the risk reward thing well. So I think with healthcare reform, people are talking a lot about rewarding and and spanking doctors who don't perform well, who yeah. don't adhere to guidelines in hospitals. What about patients? You know, what is their responsibility? We don't allocate organs to patients who smoke and don't do certain things. Um, we were talking to a, a company that has the largest hospital chain in India, 67 hospitals, and everybody pays. It's all self-pay there those patients really take their medicine. They're very engaged, they're paying for their healthcare. So if is a right and you needn't pay for it, you know, what's your responsibility to, to it and to your health? Now maybe you don't take things for very legitimate reasons. We're trying to get patients to learn that better and understand that better. But what is the patient's obligation? What if you put a game in the diabetic uh, uh, application and you try to motivate people through rewards to do the right thing? It, it opens up this reward piece. You could also, I, I assume, punish people by not insuring them or some other horrible thing. If they didn't take drugs for very legitimate reasons, they ran out of money, somebody died, they travel, I don't know. But, but you could also reward them in ways that might really motivate them mm-hmm. in and in make it fun. Mm-hmm.
1: And before we get to that, we'll continue on that theme in just a minute, but, I, but Dr. Moon, as Leslie was saying, many of these devices, um, while well, they're sold to, phys- to, to physicians right now, Companies like Proteus this is something that you were saying when we were speaking on the phone, that they're really targeting consumers. Um, and that we've really already seen this in a sense with pharmaceutical companies, and we've seen patients uh, you know, thoroughly sold on the need that they need a particular pill, and they go to their doctor and they demand it whether they need it or not. And so I wonder if you imagine a sort of similar dynamic evolving here where your company is rightly trying to sell its products to consumers, and consumers are going to their doctors and saying, put this thing in me, I want it now. And it's $25,000. Well,
0: I think, so ours wouldn't be $25,000, okay. <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I think that's a really important force that's, that's uh, going to be shaping healthcare here and, and the rest of the world is, is the consumerization movement. Um, you know, we've seen solutions come down in other markets, financial world, as you were mentioning, and others where, where when given the tools to actually self-manage, people actually start to embrace it pretty quickly. And I, I think that we, as physicians, if I put on the other hand, are going to have to get used to the fact that um, uh, that that consumer patient is going to have a lot more influence and power than they used to, uh, not only because they're, they're going to have sort of the market power to come in and ask for things, but, but as well, they can be a really active participant in, in managing themselves, so um, I I, I think that's going to be a that's going to be an important force that we see, and it's going to you know I think the market force uh, based upon that consumer demand will actually shape a lot what the physicians and the healthcare systems are doing.
1: Is that the way it should be, though? Patients coming in who, albeit may have been learning a lot about their illness or their disease, but they think they know, and so doctors. And we've just we've seen it in the pharmaceutical industry. We've seen that this doesn't always play out the right way.
0: Yeah, it doesn't always play out the right way, but uh, at least I, I personally believe in giving people information, giving them education, giving them mental models to understand their condition. And as you said, there's there's examples where people actually adopt it pretty quickly. People that use um, complicated insulin pumps, you know, they have to make adjustments on the fly based upon readings and what they're eating and how much they're exercising, they can do it. So why not you know, get them to be part of the solution and sort of distribute the work of care to, to the people that actually care about it the most.
1: Mm. And Mike Shapiro, do you, do you see any issues here with companies like Proteus marketing directly to consumers and how that might put pressure on that patient-provider uh, relationship?
3: The, uh, that's a whole panel unto itself. The, uh, the uh, direct communication between manufacturers, uh, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical companies, device manufacturers, and uh, the public. Um, I uh, have. I think, in general, it's a good idea. This is not because I have such great confidence in the, uh, you know, the average person, whoever that may be. You know, half the people in the world are at or below the median. Think of that. <laughs> So, uh, but you know, I don't, see, I don't see that things are necessarily improved by putting a blockade between them, uh, like insisting uh, everything go to the uh, physician first. Um, the usual objection is that if you market directly to patients or the patient class, they're gonna start harassing their physicians. Give me this, give me that. Well, too bad. I mean, you know. The patient is the one who is in need, the physician If the physician cannot stand explaining things to patients, I'm sorry, they're in the wrong business. It's true that they can't spend that much time with every patient, but they simply cannot go around saying, we want to keep as much as possible from patients, and we don't want patients asking us about things that they have heard, and by the way, physicians don't have time to keep up with anything. When my kids were young, I had to explain to the pediatrician that the levels Considered safe, in quotes, for lead, had been drastically lowered. He thanked me. He didn't know.
4: Hmm.
3: Anyway, that's that's the answer to uh, <laughs> the, the question. I have no intrinsic objection to that kind of direct uh, uh, that, that kind of direct. Uh, communication
1: well, but, maybe when we get to audience questions we'll see if we 'll if, see if that comes up at all. I, uh, Dr. Saxon, I wanted to ask you this question, and given that your patients are not necessarily seeing the raw data just yet but eventually seeing the raw data or some uh, or some um, uh, or, or some other kind of report that would come out of the data but I, I wanted to find, I wanted to ask you if it 's possible that You know, this question of whether or not medicine works better when patients don't actually have all the raw data. You know, that if all the raw data and the notes are public, would it squelch debate on medical teams? You know, providers will oftentimes come together and debate out what should we do with this patient? And if you were kind of let into that sausage making, might you not feel a bit uncomfortable about the fact that this is in some cases more of an art form than it is a science?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is, and I think people are more sophisticated than we appreciate. For instance, we have a new device we're putting in that's an artificial heart, basically. It's a sophisticated pump. It's $200,000, okay? We need better ways to consent patients for that. We can use entertainment narrative games to really let them understand what they're getting with this $200,000 investment. We, the physicians, need to understand who to implant it in. Um, the families, and there is a whole ethic around doing this or letting the patient go into palliative care or kind of hospice sort of environment, letting them go on to heart transplant, whatever it is. We don't have the right tools to do that. The wireless tools and entertainment and all this stuff is out there that will allow us to enrich that ethically, I think, and and therapeutically. Why should I have to go wait until I go to a conference and talk to the guy from Cleveland Clinic who's done 90 when we've done 30 to really figure out that we made a mistake on the first 15 and now the hospital's in the tank, $10 million of patients haven't done well and we're all traumatized. you know, there are better ways to do a lot of this, and we just need to use all this other technology that's being used for entertainment and streaming live television shows and and use that for to consent patients and ha- let doctors understand, you know, the implications of the, these great technologies so that we can optimally, you know, implement them and don't have to spend five years and get a bad name for the technology in doing that. And that's, you know, that's, I think, the responsibility um, that we have, getting people to integrate across these other disciplines that are needed to do that, you know, to get the cinematic arts guy engaged in how to do a, an entertaining consent form and take doctors down a pathway that allows them to visualize what's happening if they make this decision in this patient. That kind of stuff is the real challenge because people aren't used to working like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting
1: because what you're trying to do at USC is you're, you're trying to bring together, like you said, people from entertainment, from the business school, from d- design and engineering, in a sense, to try and come up with these platforms.
2: Well, those are the teams that, that we think are essential to delivering the stuff in a, in a mm-hmm. way that's designed well, that works, that licensing agreements that can be made between, it's all doable, mm-hmm. but it, it really, it does challenge a, you know, the more established way of working. And you've said,
1: you've actually said products for medical services may be the most valuable thing in the iTunes store. What do you mean by that?
2: I think that, you know, it's a very easy thing. You know, you have a need, you have a medical need, you want to talk to, you want to look at your kid's rash, you don't want to wake up the other kid and go to the ER for six torturous hours. <laughs> go on FaceTime. And download that app and talk to that pediatrician who's really good, um, and have a charge to your credit card and figure out what you're going to do with that kid or a burn or what you know whatever it is and that type of service, you know which. Unbelievably, you can't get in America today with all that we have. You can't get a doctor on FaceTime or on a video when you need them. It seems crazy, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Can we get consent forms that are like pop-up books? That would be
2: cool. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Dr. Moon, I wanted to
1: bring this question back to you because I'm sure you all have thought about this question of how much data should or could be shared with the patient, him or herself. Um, how, how, do you fit, how do you think about of the constant stream of data that's coming from these devices? Mm-hmm how you A, encapsulate it, and B, how you decide what of these many data points are important to share?
0: Well, I, I think fundamentally everybody's different, right? So you need to, you need to have ways of, of personalizing how much information is coming in to the patient. Um, some people might just kind of want the thumbs up, things are going great. Um, some icon on their phone, other people you know might want to dive into the nitty gritty graphs of how this interrelates with that, and so I think part of it is 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 uh, allowing uh, a set of tools that can kind of morph with the uh, the individual for their needs. Um, I think the other piece of it is you 've got to sort of step people through it you can 't all of a sudden just dump uh, gobs of health information on somebody without some sort of again, mental model about how how the data fits together, how one factor influences another, and so for example, um, uh, you know, even though we can gather all this physiologic information and behavioral information and things, are you exercising, are you taking your pill, you you probably would just start with something small. Like, hey, let's see how you're doing with your meds, and let's feedback information as to you know, which are your troubled days, which ones aren't, and have you think about, and then you move them to the next module, like uh, you know, let's get you working on exercise for your diabetes. So I think it's staging and personalization of the technology.
1: And Dr. Sexton, you were saying earlier today that the, 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 sort of the law hasn't really, and the regulatory agencies haven't really kept up with this. Um, Explain why why AT&T and Qualcomm and some others uh, maybe are a little, are excited about
2: this space, but also there's some regulatory issues really to sort out. Yeah, I I mean, I think the FDA is trying to keep up with it. It just, again, it challenges their traditional model of, you know, the FDA has to look at safety and efficacy. If you have a device that gets approved by the FDA that Medicare then pays for, which is the business model for most high-end medical technologies, uh, the FDA needs something to compare to, standard care, and to show that this widget has, is safe and efficacious, more efficacious than standard care. Otherwise, why would they pay more for it? So suddenly they're looking at a ton of wireless products and applications that are sucking data out of an implanted device. That's a space they typically regulate. But is it really different than an electronic medical record that they don't regulate? And what about the airspace? It's a little different than an iPhone app or pairing in Bluetooth that may fall apart. And not important, but if it's coming out device, you better, better have it safe and secure. So they suddenly find themselves needing to talk to the FCC and the, the, they 're just i mean I think they 're thoughtful people and they 're trying to understand the space they 're also trying to protect the public health and what part of it do they regulate what part don 't they you know we have these discussions with them they have a high level of sophistication they 'd love to see the costs go down and the efficacy go up. They understand that the lack of information and connectivity cripples health care outcomes but it 's you know it, it just requires a little bit to work out. What I was telling you earlier is I think that if there's enough of a consumer demand for it, it'll push the FDA in a certain direction in the same way there was a big consumer demand for HIV drugs. And the pharma companies were a little bit disabled in their product development by FDA. By FDA and then FDA liberalized um, you know, the kind of criteria to get a successful HIV drug out. And that kind of moved the field. You know, but there was a lot of activism around that. And I think mm-hmm. it'll take that kind of thing almost. Once you start to show people what you can give them and how you can connect them, maybe it'll take that to kind of push everybody mm-hmm. to... to open it up a little bit. I don't know how it'll, it'll play out. And
1: Mr. Shapiro, what do are, what are you see in terms of the areas of law that are unsettled, that need to settle out before perhaps companies like AT&T would be willing to, to make a big investment in this space? Or, or, or is we just gonna apply law from other areas to these new kinds of devices? I don't think
3: there are any serious new novel, unprecedented regulatory uh, issues. I think that what these companies will do will depend on the way we sort out the issues we've been talking about so far. Uh, for example, you know the plethora of data that you were asking about before, and how you, uh, how you sort through it. Well, one of the under, underappreciated areas of uh, patient-physician interaction concerns, patients who don't particularly want to know all of this stuff, and there's this view around that if the patient doesn't want to know, the patient has to be forced to know, a kind of involuntary informed consent. But autonomy includes a certain degree of discretion about how autonomous you want to be. And there are other areas, uh, and I think the uh, the companies that um, you're talking about are just gonna stand back and watch to see what happened. Uh, we've got two physicians here who are already oriented toward autonomy and privacy and voluntariness. So, you know, I uh, I'll take a usual role reversal here. There are areas in which coercion may be justified. For example, take transplantation. All informed consent, all voluntary, all autonomous. But it's an enormous amount of money. If the patient is noncompliant, it goes to waste. Uh, if you have a liver transplant and you're told, we're going to monitor you to make sure you take the immune suppression drugs, and that you don't drink, and if you don't agree, you don't get the liver transplant, you know, that's not like saying I'm not gonna treat you if you don't agree to have a smart pill to make sure you're taking your blood pressure medic. That's a whole Mm -hmm. different thing.
1: Interesting. Well, I wanna thank you very much. We're gonna move
2: to the uh, audience questions now.
3: With the new Affordable Care Act, um, can we afford this technology?
2: I mean, I think think the most promising aspect of this is on the cost side it'll really deliver. And if you think about, even in the developing world now, how much cell phones, you know, this is a five billion people have cell phones, it's a diagnostic and therapeutic device. Drug TB, drug compliance, tracking disease trends. I mean, that is an unbelievably inexpensive way uh, to bring more physician care, high-end physician care to to patients. It's just, um, it's very promising. And but, um,
1: but does a smart pill that has a microchip, mm-hmm. though, cost, I imagine, it would cost more than a pill that well, does certainly.
0: not? So um, I think really the focus on, is on value. So you're not just necessarily paying for the additional technology that's added to your daily pill, but it's the, the benefits you get from increased productivity from the providers, decreased hospitalizations because people are more adherent, um, uh, just much more targeted use of resources because you know... Um, who's having trouble and some of the reasons why. Um, so I, I think there's there's ways to um, you know recoup that cost pretty readily um, based upon the, the the impact that you have from from uh, any of these systems.
2: And, and there's another part of this the public doesn't talk think about much. I mean, yeah, I can put this twenty five thousand dollar device in you, and it's we've shown in a recent study we just published that if it's wireless, you'll live twice as long than if it's not presumably because of this partnership, but you know, it's, it's, it's um, if people die, it's not very expensive. If they stay alive, it is. They live to enjoy some other disease that costs money. So I think that you, know, you have to kind of take that into context. So if you show high technology saves lives, those people are going to go on and live and get other stuff.
3: You need to distinguish between long run and short run, uh, as, as uh, Dr. Moon suggested about recouping costs. Uh, prices may go up in the short run. but the promise of this technology is that it will reduce costs in the longer but you never know i mean you know it'll cost a lot of money to develop a tricorder you know the star trek thing and the price may never come down it may not be like computers
2: is there any organized group uh, that's opposed to implementation of technology in the medical field and if there is what's their agenda why are they opposed to it yeah, there was a recent FCC FDA kind of public forum, and I read through the comments. And there were a number of groups, uh, pediatric groups, patient advocacy groups, and other groups that were concerned just about the wireless environment and how safe it is to have all these wireless devices, and turn, you know, like cell phone, brain tumor, that type of thing. Um, the data is very mixed. I, I, I don't know a lot about it, but my sort of understanding is that the concern mostly relates around a lot of the kind of wireless technology and what that will how that will impair health if everybody is constantly transmitting all this stuff, or in a completely wired environment, where you know if your 90-year-old dad's living alone what his refrigerator temperature is, if he's gotten out of bed, you know, that, that kind of stuff.
3: Can I comment? Yeah, right. please do. Yeah. Uh, this, was not, this didn't come up during the main part of the discussion, but uh, part of the objection to the implementation of technology and I'm not talking about Luddites, anti-science, anti-technology people, um, has to do with what people think might be a, um, a subtle challenge to our basic normative system. If we think that everybody around us is wired up and somebody's getting data about them for whatever purpose, it sort of changes the feel of things. You know, it's not like exactly operating with surrogate you know, that movie surrogates. You know, just, this isn't the real person. But, you know, they're going to worry. Irrationally, most of the time, they're going to worry about whether or not what they say is going to be transmitted to someone else. The whole idea that people are wired up and hooked up and connected, you know, not everybody wants to be connected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um,
0: that's, that's, well. that's
3: part of what the opposition is.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know of any particularly organized groups myself, but uh, I, I think it's pretty healthy. Um, so so you know, perhaps some people might be m- misinformed. Perhaps people have the you know, really legitimate objections. And I think it keeps us on our toes to always be thinking about safety and the ethics of what we're developing.
4: How do the large insurance companies and large hospital groups feel
1: about it?
0: um so we we've spoken with large hospital groups, large integrated um, health systems they, you know the, the, the kind of things that we're discussing as to to our value resonates with them because they actually see whole costs right so um, they they know you know from the the inpatient to the outpatient to the pharmacy, all of that's something that they have visibility into so it, arguments about Um, you know, more cost-effective care and increased productivity tend to resonate with them. Perhaps the other side of that coin regarding the wireless transmission of your condition, are there liability issues? Because if Verizon or AT&T drops my call,
1: it's not a big issue, but if I'm having an episode with my heart and they drop that call, it could be a little more precarious.
3: There is a field called products liability. Devices go bad. Bridges fall down, planes crash. Yeah, there is that risk. Um, You're going to be taking a chance every time you use a device, and in the short, you know, it's like people who refuse to fly on the new model of an airplane until there have been two or three, uh, I know this is a grim subject, but you know, (laughs) uh, two or three three crashes. Um, There can't be any guarantees, and the issue that legal academics and lawyers debate have to do with the extent of liability. Uh, If you put liability, strict liability, products any kind of liability, that goes beyond, you know, even if it's limited to negligence on the manufacturers, they're going to reduce their investments in in their R&D in developing these products. On the other hand, we don't have a national fund to compensate people for being injured by products over which they have no control there's your trade-off for you. If you want patients to be compensated, you're going to have to trade off against diminishing a certain amount of investment and development in. It's like the the problem with vaccines, the problems with antibiotics. People sue all the time, and there's a pressure not to invest because of the risk. Uh, I don't have any solution for that. uh, All I can do is say, you know, that's life.
1: Dr. Saxton, when you've talked with AT&T or Qualcomm or some of these companies, I mean, A, there's just this question of is, the, is their network big enough? Is it robust enough? Um, I often get my phone just does drop out. But what do, they, what do they say to this question?
2: They think it's a legitimate concern and, and the companies aren't going to release data over smartphones until they have some understanding. Now, it doesn't, nothing is 100% reliable, but it has to be at a, to a higher standard than it is now. Where physicians object to this data are looking at is the physicians often will feel liability. If I'm getting this wireless data daily and I don't look at it and something happened, what's my liability? Mm-hmm. And so physicians can be resistant to it. And I often wonder, well, what's your liability if, half, if, you, if you have the capability you don't wire your patient up? Isn't there an equal liability there? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. And, Dr. Moon, is this I assume this is something that you often have thought about. Do you
1: give do you imagine that when you roll out these types of systems that you'll be giving, uh, you know, here's what we recommend, best practices is to check it every 12 hours, every 24 hours, every seven days?
0: So we fundamentally don't want to dictate how medicine is practiced. We want to essentially enable the communication flows to take place and then physicians and providers and patients can choose to use the information as they will Um, because they're, they're ultimately the ones that know best what to do with
4: it. Yeah, that's a good question. You've mentioned that there's several different agencies, um, insurance, hospitals, physicians, that all have a dog in the game, and as, in addition to the patients. One thing that I was a little disappointed that you didn't have here is a um, biotechnologist who can talk about the inventions that are being made. One of the problems that a lot of people who are biotechnologists or inventors or scientists face is commercializing their product, and their invention, and getting it into any type of clinical mainstream. If you have a university behind you, it's a great deal. But if you're going up against investors, the risk is huge, because you're saying, first I have to educate the public about, or, and the physician, all these different groups, about my product, and then they're gonna look at impact. And they're gonna say, oh, I've got this stream of income coming in now, what is this invention gonna do to this? So my question is, not just for uh, broadcast transmission of information which is what you're talking about but about other types of devices I would like just from the panel what do you think is the best way to commercialize it when you have a very conservative groups that are worried about liability and they're also worried about cost of my future earnings thanks
0: We'd, our system is as it is where you know a lot of things get commercialized through um, private means there, there are obviously routes through um, government-based grants, uh, SBIR type things. Uh, um, I, I, I think you know we're sort of moving towards a model where there's going to be a lot of private-public collaboration to, to bring compelling technologies to the market. But it is definitely a challenge for somebody small with a good idea to take that forward.
1: Yes,
3: please. I, uh, say one thing about that. Um, the last couple of questions have raised uh, questions about serious value issues and trade offs. And this may be obvious to, to, to most of you, but it needs to be said. When you have serious basic collisions of values, there aren't any algorithmic answers. There is no answer to the question raised uh, about biotechnology that is going to satisfy all the values because they essentially conflict. Uh, you know, it's guns versus butter writ large. Uh, this is. Pretty much the same point that I was making earlier in response to an earlier question. These are genuine issues that you are raising, but there is no determinate outcome that is going to put everything in place and optimize all values. That's the way the world is. This is not because of human stupidity. That's the way the world is. So I'm sitting up there thinking about one panelist who probably should have been here but isn't, and that is an insurance executive. And so I'm thinking of myself as potentially the uh, representative of, say, disunited health care, something like that.
0: (laughs) And I'm asking myself the
3: question, this is fascinating, but how are we going to pay for it? And I think there's a model, and the model is the tiered system. We currently allow uh, folks who are willing to um, go to hospitals that are not rated as highly to pay less for their insurance reimbursement. And I wonder if a situation might occur where folks who are willing to... Pay less to get their device, might in turn have to give up more of their privacy rights. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, uh, particularly, that didn't seem to be raised this evening, and
0: I'm wondering if that's a, a concern.
1: And Medicare does, in fact, pay for many of Dr. Saxon's patients. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about sort of the next generation. How do you demonstrate to an insurer, whether it's Medicare or private payer, that this is a good
2: investment, essentially? Well, they're pretty interested in looking at lots of data. So when you start to do things wirelessly, you understand huge trends. Um, there's a huge um, piece of all this discussion that can go on prevention of disease. They they're very interested in implementing large programs around proper diet, obesity. This wireless space is very enriching for them, and that will save them money. So they view wireless medicine as a potential huge cost saver already. They're open to it. Um, I don't. I don't know what the privacy issues are above and beyond what they always are with this. Um, you know, and they're into the risk reward thing. They're very happy to reward their own employees and their, their beneficiaries with, with lower rates if they watch their weight and all that kind of stuff.
1: But it's a provocative question. You know, we don't allow people to sell their organs. Should we allow people to sell their data?
3: I have a rather complicated disease And it has manifested itself by my reading a lot of peer reviewed
1: journals.
3: (laughs) I hope to recover from that aspect of it. In any event, one of the most interesting articles I've read in recent times is in the Public Library of Science, MED, why most published research findings are false. And many of the high tech solutions you gentlemen, ladies, advocate depend on very limited studies. And this article points out all the ways in which these studies can go wrong.
1: Yeah. And Dr. Saxon just recently had an, a, a study published, although t- to your point, yes, I read that as well, um, that did find, in fact, that your, this technology that you've been using has reduced mortality for people who
2: have it installed, is that correct?
1: How how confident are you in, I guess the question is ultimately, how confident are you
2: in your study? It's a a great question. I mean, so the the largest study of these devices to save lives was 2,000 people. With the wireless devices, we have mortality outcomes in 200,000. So we were able in the study to validate the clinical trial that led to billions of you know, federal dollars going to these devices to validate the outcomes, and, and say not only that, but there's a big upfront cost here that that result is durable in patients over five, ten years. That's of huge value because suddenly you're making the observation not just in the confines of a clinical trial where enrollment is limited, et cetera, but across a broad population of people in the United States, different practice patterns, unselected patients. The, the ability of wireless medicine to, to really tell us what therapies are effective by hard outcomes like mortality, rehospitalization, is really promising. They may be one of the most promising areas. Um, the Obama administration is looking at it hard in terms of comparative effectiveness. Mm-hmm.
1: And and to the the person's other question about insurers, certainly Medicaid and Medicare, and also many private insurers, certainly Medicare, they're very rigorous, right, in terms of they want to see these trials, they want to see these studies before they'll actually say Medicare is going to pay for some device.
4: Yeah, is that
3: right? Uh, I'm on a panel with some very upbeat people here. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of the questioners have asked things like, how are we going to pay for all this? There seems to be a presupposition that there is a good chance that things are going to turn out well if we think things through and try hard enough. Um, well, one answer is we're not going to be able to pay for it. You know, people are going to die. Another is we can pay for everything we want in the field of health care if we don't pay for other stuff. The roads will crumble. We can stop paying for national defense. You know, I mean, listen, not everything is going to turn out all right in every respect. Sorry. Also, there's not going to be anything left after hundred years. <laughs> okay.
0: Simple question that I don't understand. You know, blood glucose meters, we can buy those at drugstores today, thermometers. I mean, isn't that the kind of technology I, I worry, the conversation always turns to this very expensive stuff. And it, it seems like the target is, the, What aren't there proven models that have worked and how did those get in there? And why, why aren't we talking about that versus this $200,000 device all the time?
2: The average diabetic who you know, is insulin dependent is checking their blood sugar five times a day. And that's a lot, right? And they are then recording that data, dosing their insulin, um, tracking that with their activity and their diet, and that's all kept in 15 different places. Very difficult to comply to that, just sticking. You know? So we're really talking about solutions that, and applications that take all of that condense it to a simple equation for the patient, or the 13-year-old juvenile diabetic, to their parent, to their doctor, and just, just simplify that. We're not trying to to, to take a blood pressure cuff and, and make it cost $20,000 instead of, you know, sixty.
0: Right, I, I could follow up on that. The, um, we, we have known therapies and management strategies out there that are very effective, right? Uh, Uh, And I don't think we necessarily need to put all of our effort into coming up with new ones. We just need to use the ones that exist more effectively. Um, That's one of the central goals of our company is, you know, information enable already effective proven therapy. And to your point, if it's cheap,
4: great. Let's, let's, Let's include that in the solution too.